Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, I, I went to this, well, it wasn't really a party. I went to my friend's place on Sunday. He was cooking pizza. He has a pizza oven in his backyard. I had a blast, but I was talking to this lady who was 42 or 43, and is, she's the first person I've met in L.A. who, one, doesn't have a computer, and two, doesn't have a cell phone. And I'm sitting there talking to her. I go, how do you, you know, go through life? And I thought, if she had a boyfriend, it'd be very, it'd be very convenient not having the cell phone because, you know, Joanne will text me if I'm out. What time are you coming home? Or you can be running out just to get, you know, something at Trader Joe's and it ends up being nine things on the list. Like, oh, can you get me this, 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 and this? And I'm thinking, this woman, if she had a boyfriend and she doesn't, she's been dating a guy for 21 years who actually lives with another girl. But I just I can't amazed I'm amazed that someone would not have a computer in this day and age. And I said you should try online dating, and she can't because she doesn't have a computer. Anyway, enough about that. We have a great show. I'm sure my next uh, guest has a uh, computer and a phone. It's Peter Millman. How you doing, Peter? I have a computer. I have a phone. I have an iPad. Do you do you, do you like the iPad? I like it for reading the New York Times. Okay, so it's just so funny. I mean, because I know you started out writing for the Washington Post, the newspaper. Yes. And so it must be weird for you to sit there now when you would write and probably go through the whole print you know the whole quite on the press stuff and now to see how people just read a lot of people just read off a tablet it must be it must be very interesting yeah um it doesn't feel like it counts as much you know like right somehow without the physical paper in my hand then the whole thing feels slightly illegitimate now but you know you you got to i guess you got to adapt now, when you were a kid, did you always want to do comedy, or did you want? Because you wrote a sports, did you want to be a sportscaster, or what was your? As a kid, what was your focuses? Um, <clears throat> very little. I I wanted to, um, you know, I was a really good kid, so I wanted to be a doctor, you know, okay. because I wanted to make everybody happy. Right. <laughs> um, I didn't realize I wanted to write till I was in college. And now you went to you're a terp, right? Yes. Okay, so now. What was your major? I mean, did you, I mean, if you went to be, at the, did you go pre-med when you went there? If, if for like one semester, I was pre-med. And then the next semester, I remember wandering over to the student newspaper office kind of almost involuntarily. And I wrote this article. I got an assignment. It's not like they can turn you down right. in the student newspaper. I got an assignment to write about unionizing employees at, at a certain library on at the University of Maryland campus, and I was totally hooked. So you just started writing for them? And yes. Then, and so did you change your major to journalism? Or? Yes, and then I changed away from journalism to, once I took all the classes that I felt like I really needed, and I became a history major just because I'm really good at essays. Okay. And I didn't really want to work very hard. Now, were you continually writing for the paper, too, as you were doing this? Yes. I mean, one semester I wrote nearly 60 articles. So what would you find the, the articles, or would they, say, give you an assignment, or would it be both ways? I got a beat. Okay. I had the student government beat. So, um, you know, student government, there was, like, endless amounts of stories. And then I would find other stories on my own. That's just great. You don't hear that anymore, like the beat. Like that's I think the old things. Like they had the beat and you know the beat writer. And you don't really hear that anymore. I know in Philadelphia they had an entertainment beat writer named Stu Bykovsky. But you know, but you don't really and he's still writing. I mean he's been writing forever. But you don't hear the beat anymore. Yeah, except in sports. In sports you hear a lot about, you know, you know, the Lakers will talk about the beat writers, you know. Now, are you a sports fan? Um Okay, let's get into semantics here. Um, <laughs> I follow sports. I don't like to think of myself as a sports fan because I look down on sports fans so much, and I think that you know sports fans are so awful. And why do you look down on them? You know, they—they they just sports fans are basically wrong about everything. You know, all they're talking about is all these guys making all this money. They should be, you know, like doing this, this, and the other thing. Like, you know, and, and you know, they call in on these sports call-in shows and they're, you know, like it's the end of the world if, you know, the Dodgers lose three games in right. a row or, the you know, the Mets lose a pitcher. You know, it's just crazy. It's It's so out of hand that, you know, I hate to be associated with them. And, you know, I worked for Howard Cosell right. in the 80s, um, 
on a show called Sports Beat. It was a sports journalism program and kind of like a forerunner to Brian Gumbel's show now. And, you know, Howard was always talking about the myth of the fan and, you know, what the fan thinks they deserve. And Howard says, you know what they deserve? A clean, safe stadium and some sign that the team is trying to put the best product out on the field. Beyond that, they deserve nothing. They think because they paid for their tickets that they're entitled, and they're not. They're not entitled to scream horrible things at players. They're not entitled to scream horrible things at the refs just because they paid money. You know, there's a difference between liberty and license. And, um, you know, Howard Cosell really shaped my opinions of sports tremendously. Now, you, when you got out, you started writing for the Washington Post. Right. Now, were you with Tony? Was Tony Kornheiser around at that time? Tony Kornheiser is basically my rabbi. Okay. So he, he started in my career. So he, he was at the Washington Post when you started? No. No. He was at the New York Times. Okay. But I knew Tony because he came down to the University of Maryland to do an article, and somebody who knew Tony said, you should talk to Peter Melman because he's kind of hooked into the sports program at Maryland. So I got to meet Tony, and I, you know, I wrote letters to him here and there, you know, just to try to keep in touch with right. this like incredibly hot writer at the New York Times. When he was at the New York Times, he was the best sports writer in America at that time. I mean, he just his stuff at the Times was unbelievable. So um, I got in at the post, you know, using him as a reference was, and um, in my first year at the post, he he came down from Washington to uh, from New York to be at the post. The post wooed him. So that must have been great for you, because I mean, sort of like a mentor or something. Oh yeah, absolutely, it was fantastic. So you wrote for them, and then how'd you end up being on the Cosell show? Um, I moved to New York. After a, after a couple, few years at the Post for, you know, incredibly immature reasons. And um, and then and I was, you know, like looking for a job in New York. And I just applied. I, I wrote a, a job letter to the um, managing editor of Howard's show at exactly the right time. And I got in and I got an interview with Howard. And um, the interview went great because he said to me, Okay, name one other sportscaster who you consider to be a good journalist. And I sat there going, well, um, no, he's not really good. Well, um, no, no, he's not really good either. And then I said, I can't think of one, Howard. And he goes, okay. He pretty much said right there, okay, I'm going to check your references. Other than that, you're hired. <laughs> See that? So, well, you know, it's funny when you said you wrote a letter. Now, because of email, yeah. people can just send letters. But back then... Like no one sent, I remember sending a letter to, I used to send letters to baseball teams to get their autograph. Right. And my mom would sit there and go, okay, there was like a book, like in the back of the sporting news, or you just write to the stadium. Like, okay, I like the Pirates. I'm going to write to uh, Three Rivers Stadium, you know, address to Dave Parker. And when you would get responses because people weren't doing it. And like with a job interview, no one really took the time to write a letter. Now it's like, you see a job interview, there's 5,000, you know, emails going through. So they must have thought you were pretty, uh, a lot of, had a lot of initiative. Yeah, and it was a really funny letter. But, you know, I not I wrote the letter. I was sending out a lot of job letters then, and, you know, I had one kind of, you know, boilerplate letter. But, you know, I change it around. And I not only wrote the letter, but I walked it to ABC. Okay. And, you know, basically put it in the mailroom. And, you know, back then, things could happen real I guess things could happen really fast now but you know it's it's really a thrill when things happen that quickly so how long was you, how long were you on that show for two and a half years okay now did you were you learning more about the writing process or were you just I mean what what did you gain from that no I was learning nothing about writing okay it was all about sports and you know journalism and things like that um, in fact I probably you know I, I ultimately got laid off but um, because after the 84 Olympics when ABC had hit a new high for corporate waste, you know, they, the cutbacks were massive. And, but, you know, it was a really good time for me to be laid off because I wasn't really writing. You know, I mean, I was writing for Howard Cosell. To me, that wasn't exactly writing. Right. You know, I learned so much about journalism and 
asking the right questions from Howard. You know, it was I was really just mainly interested in the questions he would ask and his take on everything. And, um, you know, the funny thing is, I, I don't know if you saw last week tonight with John Oliver this past week, but he did a whole thing about how sports teams hold cities hostage all over America, you know, for new to build a new stadium and things like that. And we were doing that story in 1983. And then from, you know, from 1984, when Howard basically retired, to now, nobody really did it. You know, I mean, this guy was like the most influential and important sports figure of his time, and nobody picked up the mantle. Well, you know what? Yeah, you're right. You know what's funny is because I've been watching that thing on CNN called The 70s, the documentary. I got to watch that. I have that. I, I like have it. it. I have it's it recorded. It's enjoyable, and they do one about the TV and the influence of sitcoms and sports. And, and I forget, because I was younger, but I mean how big Monday Night Football was. I remember when I was a kid, because back east, it started at 9. And the week of my birthday, which is October 30th, my birthday, is that, that Monday, my parents would let me stay up to watch the game. Of course, I'd always fall asleep. You know, I'd be putting, nice my, people, putting the parents. football helmet on, you know, just sitting there going, okay, I'm going to stay awake. But you're a kid. And, you know, you're in like. You were in this, Pittsburgh? No, I was in Philadelphia. I was in Philadelphia. But I remember. You were a Pirates fan then? No, you know, oh, oh, oh. I, I was a Phillies fan, but I loved Dave Parker. I loved Dave Parker, and I loved, and I, for some reason, I did send Dave for Dave Parker's autograph. I got Ed Ott's back. So I was like, wait a second, I get Ed Ott. But I was, as a kid, you're so excited because you get this little picture that says, you know, Steve and Betts. And, you know, now oh, looking yeah. back, it may not My be brother did the same thing. But it was just, My brother got a letter from Gail Sayers in his See, that's year. amazing. I mean, it was unbelievable. I remember I got a letter from, because uh, I like soccer, a guy named Ken Cooper, who played for Dallas. And I said, well, you're English, and I'm part English, you know. Maybe we're related because you're a kid. And I remember he sent this nice letter back. And back then, soccer players were probably like, who the hell's sending? Who is this kid have a problem? Who's sending us letters? But it was great. That was a thing. But uh, no, as I say, they talked about how, how big the Monday Night Football was and how it was an entertainment uh, icon. Like, and they brought Dandy Don Meredith on to be just this, you know, this buffoon sort of. And Cosell just hit it right. And they just would have, they're showing some of the celebrities that would show up in the booth. And it was yeah. a huge thing. Yeah, I got to watch that. So after you leave, you start freelance writing? Is that what happens? Um, after I get laid off from ABC Sports, I, uh, I'm you know, kind of like looking around for another job to figure out what's next. And in the meantime, I get this little idea about writing an article called The We Just Broke Up Last Night Diet. Okay. Which basically covers what you eat for like the, ne- the week after you've been dumped. Okay. And I wrote it. And I got in contact with an editor at Glamour who put me in touch with an editor at Mademoiselle because it was more for better for them. And it sold, and I sold the piece in like a day. I was like, wow, oh, this is good. I could do this for a while. This is really fun. And so, you know, I ended up writing for like freelance for a ton of women's magazines. And then I got in at GQ, you know, and Esquire. So I got, you know, and I just started doing this. And then I got in, you know, then I had a really big story at the New York Times. Well, so. were, were these articles just ideas you had and just sort of basically like a, just a short, sort of like a short story, but a factual short story? You know, it, it varied a lot. You know, I would do some, you know, some of them were just all out of my head, like, you know, male point of view stuff, what it's like to date a vegetarian, you know, how your entire, war, how your entire wardrobe changes once you're dating someone, okay. you know, like stuff like that. You know, just male point of view stuff, and they ate that up. And, you know, I was always kind of, you know, ranking on men, you know, which they also love. Oh, yeah. You know, like, you, you know, you, you can't, you know, like on the male side of breaking up and, you know, like making the guy seem so much more hapless than than any woman is imagining. So that was really fun, and I totally just love doing that. Now, what was the article in the New York Times you wrote that became so big? The article I wrote in the New York Times was, not that this is such a recurrent theme in my life, but after I had been dating a girl who um, was going to Yale Business School, and I spent all my weekends up there, and they kind of, we kind of, we broke up, and I, I had this like Saturday where I wasn't very well grounded in planning solo weekends anymore. I didn't know what to do with myself. I walked outside and um, I thought I saw Tom Jarrell, who was a newsman on a big ABC national newsman, walking on my street. 
Now, my friends and I were incredibly great at making the most obscure celebrity spots in New York. Okay. You know, like Grace Paley. <laughs> you know, like unbelievable. You know, Daryl Zanuck. Right. You know, on the streets of New York. We could pick out anyone. We were amazing at it. And we talk about it all the time. So it wasn't Tom Jarrell, and I got annoyed, and I said, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to walk around this city till I make a celebrity spot, then I'll go home. <laughs> and that's what the, the article, you know, the, the structure of the article was that walk, and then it went into a bunch of digressions about life and love in New York, and it was kind of funny and bittersweet at the same time. And uh, it was, you know, it just got huge reaction. It was, I published it in the New York Times Magazine on something that used to be called the About Men column. And, um, you know, I had, I went out for breakfast that Sunday morning with some friends. And when I got back, I had a, a completely full answering machine. And 75% of the, the calls were from people I didn't know. What were they just calling you about? Were they just saying we love the article? Were they giving you yes, job offers? Or... We love the article. See, that's All... back back then. People put their numbers in the phone book. Like now, yeah. there isn't even a phone book. I mean, now you can't really find a number. But it must have been. It must have been very interesting for you. Getting it home was going, great. Whoa. It was great. Of course, you know the best call and the you know like the kind of sexiest voice of any of the women who called was this one woman who said. God, that was really just a beautifully written, well thought out, funny, poignant piece. Really, really well done. Beautiful. And of course, she didn't leave a name or phone number or anything <laughs> like that. Everybody else did. Of course, then again, now I would have caller ID. I would have been able to trace right. her, you know? <laughs> exactly. So so that's a hit. So now, what brought you out to L.A.? Because I mean, after that, did you decide to move to L.A.? Or how did you start coming out to L.A.? Um, I moved to L.A. about eight months after that article came out and I just did it kind of for a change. And, you know, like I said, I had been at the 84 Olympics for, you know, and that was like a month in LA and I always liked it a lot. And, um, so I just decided, you know, it would be good for a change. And, you know, I was going to continue freelance magazine writing, which, you know, in LA would offer a whole new, a whole new realm of stories, you know, because it's a completely different, lifestyle so um i moved out here and um you know i really loved it right from the get-go did you start freelance writing when you moved out here i was still freelance writing i mean i was you know i adjusted my articles for la in a certain way you know like i did this one story for for gq about going to a series of plastic surgeons and saying you know i'm thinking about going in front of the camera what would you do for me you know, and it was just really funny, you know, like it was kind of un like undercover work. And then, you know, I wanted to make some money because, you know, the move is always a little expensive. And I ended up having a more expensive rent out here than I did in New York. Where did you live when you first moved here? I always Venice. Ben okay, so you picked Venice. Now, Venice back then wasn't as nice as it is now. No, it was. I lived on the canals and that was before they rebuilt the canals. And it was it was great. It was a little seedy. But it was great. Okay. You know, it was so much fun. But, you know, like during the riots where I lived, it was dicey. I mean, right. we were all hanging out there going, geez, this is a little, uh, you know. We're not in New York anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, it was unbelievable. And, you know, I didn't even know that I was living, you know, somewhat close to the Oakwood section of Venice, which at that time had the highest murder rate per square mile in America. Well, I always say that when you come from back east. Like back east, you know, growing up, you went to school in Maryland. So, you know, Baltimore, D.C., even New York, Philadelphia, you know when you're in a bad neighborhood. Like you drive, drive, right. and all of a sudden, holy crap, there's a there's a 15 or 50-story tenement. You know, you sit there and you – I used to do stand-up comedy. I remember this one comic, this kid, Steve Thomas, is like, okay, he goes, uh, I'll meet you at, at front of university, like near University of Penn. I said, well, I'll pick up. He goes, oh, no, no, you don't want to come in my neighborhood. You know, And it was – you know that out here – I always say you could be just driving, and you're like, oh, this is a nice neighborhood. Then you're going, what the hell is oh, going on here? no idea. Yeah. You have no idea. I mean, you know, it was it was wild. I, You know, it was really crazy because, I mean, you know, later when I was on Seinfeld and I would come home, I was at, you know, three years 
I was still in Venice, at, maybe even four years, and then three years. While I was on Seinfeld, you know, when I'd come home after shoot nights, you know, we'd go out to eat, and I'd come back really late, and I'd get into bed and hear automatic gunfire right. in the middle of the night, like, all the time. It's crazy. So now, so you, you were out here, and then, now the first script you wrote, I believe, did you write for Wings? Is that true? Did you... I did write once. I, I was, yes. How, I did was... You, how did you get into writing? Um, TV. When I, I, some, I, I, through my ex-girlfriend, I met this agent, Mitch Kaplan, and he, he and his partner took me on. And they packaged the show Wings because they represented um, the late David Angel, who died on 9-11, crashing into the World Trade Center. Um, It was really funny. They, they, um, so they packaged the show, so they kind of begged the producers if they would let me pitch ideas for the show for a freelance trip. And, um. This is really funny because the night before I was going into my pitch, you know, my agent called me and said, "So what? What's your? What are you? What ideas are you going to pitch?" And I told them my ideas, and they said to me, and one of them says to me, "Well, look, just try to have a good time." <laughs> You're like, could you be any more discouraging? Exactly. <laughs> well, I went in there and completely kicked ass. I mean, they. I was there at 10 o'clock. They were expecting nothing. They were doing this as a favor. And I started reeling off my ideas. And I left that office at 4.30. I was there for lunch. I was there for this. And then, you know, like I was hired on for six weeks. But the ideas that I pitched, they could, all of a sudden they changed them. And they decided to just give me a whole other idea. So they gave me an idea. And... You know, it was interesting because I just, I didn't even get the characters. Like, the one who was the womanizer was, like, 20 times less good-looking than the one who wasn't. Right. And I just got all, like, befuddled. <laughs> I was writing, like, for the wrong characters. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm not somebody who, to this day, can write jokes. So, um... You know, I got that one script. Um, it was on the air. There's virtually nothing of it that I wrote. And, um, you know, every six months or so, I still got $30 for it. All right. Well, how, and then how did that parlay into the Seinfeld? Well, it didn't. It didn't parlay at all. Um, I bumped into Larry David. Uh, had you known him from New York? Or? I met him twice in New York. And, you know, we had spent kind of one day in the Hamptons together, and, you know, we kind of got along. And he said he was gonna, he uh, was doing this little TV show with Jerry Seinfeld. Maybe he could write a script. I, I don't even think he realized that I had never written scripts. Okay. So I gave him that About Men column from the New York Times. He asked for a writing sample that he could pass on to Jerry. Weirdly enough, he had asked, he had off, made the same offer to several friends, and my About Men column was the only writing sample that Jerry responded to. Wow, that's so funny. It wasn't even in the same meeting. That's what's right. great. I mean, that's what's great about it. Well, I was very lucky that they had never done a sitcom before and they didn't know what they were doing. Right. I was really lucky. And, you know, <laughs> that was a very fortunate. And, um, you know, the article was perfect for Jerry's sensibility because it was really funny and it was very New York. So, um, they uh, brought me in to, um, you know, discuss ideas for a show, and uh, I got to write a script, and um, it was really amazing. You know, like, the funny thing is, you know, I wasn't really thinking that much about being in TV, but at that time, they had done three episodes, and they gave me this, the cassettes right. of those three episodes, and I'm watching it, and all of a sudden, I'm like having this nervous feeling like, oh, my God, this is really good. I mean, this is a show that I would actually like to be on and successful on. I mean, this is really 
I thought the episodes were just like amazing. And that was the first season. Yeah, I mean, those were literally the first three episodes. I remember it was called the Seinfeld Chronicles. The, the first, first two or three, yeah. Okay. And you know, so I wrote my episode, and it was shocking, you know, like the difference between them and Wings, you know, because at Seinfeld, you know, I gave them the idea, and they go, "Oh, okay, that's good. Go ahead and write it." You know, at Wings, I gave they gave them like four ideas that they absolutely loved. And they were trying to take me beat by beat by beat. It became like fill in the blanks, you know, pick color by numbers. At Seinfeld, they were just like, it was so weird. I mean, I walked in there and in the three o'clock and I remember little Jerry going, God, you know, I haven't done a thing all day. I'm exhausted. And I'm like thinking, Jesus, I think I'm home here. Right. <laughs> you know, just the sense of humor. And, you know, I mean, I, in the script, I was writing and I threw in a whole storyline that I didn't even discuss with them when I met. You know, there was a storyline and the main storyline was Jerry kind of absentmindedly telling Elaine that an apartment opened up in his building and all of a sudden, oh my God, he's going to have his ex-girlfriend living in his building. And I told them that, you know, this whole thing I had about, you know, he was going to lose the home bed advantage. Right. Because he'd have to have all his sex at the girls' houses, you know. But I threw it, all of a sudden, I'm like thinking, I threw in this whole thing that I never mentioned <clears throat> about a New York marathon party and George wearing a wedding ring to see if girls would really hit on him right. if he was wearing a wedding ring. I mean, it was so disorganized. I mean, you know, I shouldn't say disorganized. It was just philosophically different than any other sitcom. Well, anyway, I wrote the script. I drove over. I gave it. I gave it to them. Handed it to them, because you know you didn't email your script right. then. <laughs> handed it to them, and Larry goes, "Oh well, we'll uh, we'll read it tomorrow and get back to you." And I get home, and I hit my answering machine, and I get a message from Larry David, and he says. Uh, we lied. We read your script uh, as soon as you left, and uh, it's great. We think you're terrific. And I turned off that message, and I called my agent, and I said, I think my life is about to radically change. Okay. Now, did you, when you went on that show, I mean, because the first season, it got lower ratings. And obviously, because I did stand-up, all, all the stand-ups we watched, because Seinfeld at the time was, you know, everyone's like, he was the guy. Like, if he was in, like, a club in the area you'd be like oh you know maybe we can get a chance to open for him and so we watched it and i think and also being the east coast mentality i think we got it better at first the, the ratings were sort of low in the first season but did you sit there and think did you know you were i mean even though you said you're going to radically change when you saw those first episodes or the ratings low did you still know you're going to be it was going to go as long as it did and you were a part of something so special I didn't know it was going to go as long as it did, but I knew I was part of something special. And whether the public, you know, confirmed that or not, I thought I was part of something special. And then, um, you know, that first, that season, you know, when I wrote the script, I was going to all the episodes. I wasn't on staff yet, but, you know, they, Larry told me after we shot my episode, Larry said, you know, if we're picked, that was the ep the season when they only had 13. The first okay. episode was like, the first season was like three. And then the next episode, they were like, they were 13 episodes. And mine was about 10th. And at the end of the shoot night that night, Larry said to me, you know, uh, you know, if we get picked up for next season, you got a job. Then I was, I was going, I was attending every taping. Just to get a better yes. comprehensive knowledge and, of the And, you show. know, like I was starting to feel a little bit like part of the family. Okay. Then I saw the episode called The um, the Deal that Larry wrote when Jerry and Elaine try to maintain their friendship yet have sex. Right. And the negotiation of that. And... I have goosebumps now talking about it because I thought that was the most brilliantly written, most fantastic scene I'd ever seen in a sitcom. And I was like, and I was thinking like, you know, I was naive. So I was saying, 
what, what do you mean if we get picked up? How could this not be picked up? This is the best thing in the history of TV. Right. You know, so I was on staff the next year, and we were persist consistently losing in the ratings to, like, Jake and the Fat Man. Right. Say, like, come on, it's William Conrad. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And then the next season, for the beginning, we were up against um, Home Improvement. Which? Which was also, you know, kick, kicking us. <laughs> yeah, because that was such a big family following, and it's, yeah. you know. So it must have been, so you're sitting there, but you guys kept churning out the work, and you just knew what you're writing was great stuff. Well, you know, we didn't really, I don't think anybody really knew what they were doing, and, and in a way, you know, the biggest challenge was just keeping up with Larry's creative evolution, you know, because, you know, it started off where, like, there would be, like, one simple story, and there would be nothing, and then the stories got a little bit more complex, and then Larry started having all four people, you know, more involved in each episode. And then, you know, it evolved into the thing where the storylines would interweave and come together at the end. So, you know, not only was it hard to come up with, you know, scripts and things like that. I mean, I was very, very good at coming up with ideas. But as far as writing the scripts, you know, you, it was very difficult to keep up with Larry's evolution because he was continually innovating with the form. Now, how would you come up with some of the ideas? Like it was, I watched, I was flipping around the other night, and me and my girlfriend always watch uh, Seinfeld and the Three Runs, and your episode, uh, The Chinese Lady, Chinese mm -hmm. Woman. Now, it was, did you come up with that idea? Did something like that happen to someone you knew? Or I mean, because the thing about Seinfeld is, the ideas are so, some of them are just so bizarre, and they're so funny, and they're things when you look at them and you go, this had to have happened to, if not, it's like one of those stories. Like someone goes, hey, did you hear about uh, such and such? Is this, he thought this girl was Chinese, but she was Jewish. I mean, how would you come up with some of these ideas that were just so different? You know, I had been a journalist my whole career up until that point. And as a journalist, you're basically looking out at the world. Now you get to Seinfeld and suddenly you're creating the world. And also, you know, the Larry David influence on you is that you're looking inward. You're looking at your own thoughts. So the big thing is to try to coax creativity out of yourself. That was what I was pretty much consumed with throughout Seinfeld. And that particular story you know, I was just like, I would look through my past. I would think about things. And then, and the funny thing is, I once had an, uh, an, a lunch with an editor in New York whose name was, I believe, Janet Chan. Okay. And the funny thing is, so I assumed she was Chinese. And, you know, in fact, I had read that book what really happened to the class of 65. And there was a girl in that named Barbara Chan or something like that. And she looked really beautiful. So I really had it in my head that this editor I was having lunch with was going to be this beautiful Asian girl. <laughs> and I get there and it's like this mousy little Jewish girl. And it's, guess, it's like, a Chinese, like a German derivation, like Chan or something, but she went with Chan. And that's where the story came from. It's just amazing, yeah, because it's funny because, I mean, you, so much of the stuff you've written, well, the show, but also what you've written has really influenced pop culture. I mean, if you think about, you know, with the double dip, I mean, that's, I mean, that's now on commercials. Like, if you talk to anybody who's over 30, and if they don't know what if you say the double dip, you want to punch them because you're like, are you, are you that? Now, did, did yeah. that come from a, another experience for you? Or? That was just a party at Venice. I saw somebody, like, say, just get annoyed at somebody for, for like, you shouldn't do that twice. You know, that's, and um, it wasn't any great stroke of genius to come up with the term double dip. Right. So, um, yeah, that was, that was one of those gift, you know, gift from above storylines. But how do you pitch that into something when you, I mean, I guess it's because the writing was, you know, because Larry said it was, you know, really because you watch the shows, you know, it's about nothingness. I mean, anywhere else, if any other show, you went up and said, hey, you know, it's going to be a scene that's going to get tons of laughs. It's, it's about George double dipping. Any other show, they'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? I mean, you know, that, ooh, I'm sorry. That's right. You know, 
the funny thing is that wasn't really a storyline. Right, it was just What that. I really needed was at a certain point George was in some kind of scheme and it was all working. Right. And on Seinfeld nothing turned out well. So I needed something to happen to destroy everything that he'd done. And the double dip was perfect. Right. The double dip was just absolutely perfect. I mean, his whole storyline in that is that he went to his girlfriend's aunt's funeral because he didn't really feel like he was the girlfriend. He was right. the boyfriend. You know, like he did never really he he hadn't gotten anywhere with her sexually. And he doesn't. He wanted to feel like the boyfriend, so her aunt died, and they're telling him, "You go to Detroit to the to the wake, and you're you're the boyfriend, right? You know, you're the one who's doing everything." And and of course, he's trying to get a death in the family fair, <laughs> which did happen to me also. You tried to do that? Yes. Okay. I'm embarrassed to say. And uh, so, I mean, that's a really complex story. I mean, there's almost like four potential storylines just in George's story. Right. Now, how would you, because some, as you said, when they're co that complex. I love that episode, by the way. That's my favorite one. Is that, that your favorite that, one? That I wrote, you know. What, what are your top three favorite ones you wrote? Um, the Implant, that's that, that's, that had um, Double Dipping and Terry Hatcher, the real and spectacular. I love that one just because I did my best work on that one. You know, like I, that was the least rewritten, you know, the least edited right. one I wrote. I, it was just great. And it also kind of like, you know, real, it was in my second season of the show and it put me in a position of like being one of the really rock solid writers on the show, you know. Um, I love the sponge. Now, how did, how did you come up with the term Spongeworthy? Is that from an experience with someone? Or, I mean, because it's, once again, one of those terms that you say, you know, no one uses a sponge anymore, so kids will never yeah. get it now. But back then, I mean, it was a great idea. How did you come up with that whole... That was another one of those incredibly lucky moments where I was driving in my car listening to NPR, and I heard a report about the Today Sponge being taken off the market the company that produced the sponge was going out of business. And immediately, this is how kind of obsessed I was with the creativity at the time. Immediately, I thought to myself, what if Elaine is a sponge user? If she loves the sponge, what would she do? Well, she would go all over. She would buy out as many of them as she can before they go off the shelves. But if she, but, you know, she'd only get a limited number, so that would change her entire screening process for who she sleeps with. And you're so thinking this as you're driving. As, as I'm driving, in one thought. Wow. Which never happened again. You know, it happened to Larry like a million times, and it used to drive me crazy, but that's the only time it happened to me. Um, and so, you know, again, you know, the term spongeworthy is not that genius of a term when you've got this whole story. You know, the, the term becomes a lot more obvious once you've got the whole story. You know, it's just putting a word to something. Right. But it's just one, it's just the way it catches him. If it was but, like, you know, that happened to Larry all the time. That's you crazy. You know, like, Larry had that the most amazing idea was Larry coming up with an idea of Jerry being caught making out with his girlfriend during Schindler's List. Right. Which... <laughs> I mean, you think about that idea. He Okay, he's... Who would, who would catch him? Who would who would be offended by that? His parents. How would they find out about it? It would be too coincidental for them to be in the same movie theater. So somebody would have to see it and drop a dime on him. Who would that be? Newman. Right. Boom. Right. You got a whole show. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, what's your third? Your third? Would you say is your third favorite? Um, I'd probably say yada yada. And now how, once again, the yada yada, I mean, was that from an experience or was that, because as I said, these things all seem like it could be an experience, but then you sit there and go, well, they're writing it. But I mean, how did that come up? Because once again, a catchphrase, it stays. I mean, I just watch, it's funny because we watch Seinfeld a lot and you rewatch them and you, th you, re you remember how funny they were. I mean, you knew you, when you saw them, they were funny. 
And then it's like anything. If you flip it on because it's on all the time now, you sit there and it's like, it's like God. And my girlfriend's a huge Seinfeld fan. She can quote like every, uh, mm. you know. And I'm like, we watch them, and I go, God, I forgot. You know how how funny they are because if you don't watch them, while you and the whole story, as you said, what amazes me, and also with Larry's work on Curb Your Enthusiasm, is even though that's more improv, there's 87 stories going. I mean, not 87, but you know, there's a bunch of stories, and they all come at the end and that's what makes it to me it makes it so brilliant because there's no there's so different stories and they just they meet up and you go you sit and you go and you know from the comic background you go how the hell do they do that you know it's like it's like just the brilliance yeah it's a rubik's cube you know it's crazy <laughs> so no the, the yada yada is that something that you came up with well or? that term um again like the story with the chinese woman i had had it i thought back to a a lunch I had had with an editor probably a decade earlier. And I just remembered that she would use, say, yada yada. And I said, God, I never heard that before. And I don't know, it stuck in my, it kind of like stuck around. I think I had even tentatively put it in one other script, but not as a story. And then I realized that as a story, it could really be a story because, you know, it just covered up all manner of sins. So, you know, that was, and, you know, you always want some, a story where, you know, it can cruise through everybody else's stories, you know, like in the smelly car, which happened to my friend, you know, at, at Marek's Tex-Mex on, oh. on Entrada. So it in happened. Santa Monica. Okay, so it actually he, happened. He, he, he had a smelly, he had a B.O. laden, um, you know, valet Parker, and, you know, that he could not get the smell out of his car. And, you know, and so, you know, I knew at that time that if I could do that, I could, you know, I could have that smell ruin everybody's day. And that's right. what you want. And yada, yada, that can ruin everybody's day. Or... It, or at least infect every story on the show. And, uh, you know, it was just... I, I I also felt very good about that episode because it was the last episode that I wrote while I was on staff, and the show had gotten a little unwieldy for me. You know, the Puerto Rican Day Parade, and, you know, the... Um, you know, just storylines that I thought were just too crazy and too big, and yada yada. If you think about it, it's a throwback to an early to the early episodes right. because it's all the storylines are very simple, very slice of life, very basic human behavior. You know, foibles, and um, you know, it was really simple and very gratifying. How was it like when you were writing that when the show just became bigger and bigger as a writer? I mean. Did you did you feel pressured that you would have to deliver because you had such a big crowd? I mean, when you go in the beginning, the crowd, you know, they dig it. And then all of a sudden you get this huge crowd. And there's some people, you know, from Texas who don't even know. I mean, it's like my mom had a friend who's like a friend from Texas, son, never even heard about, didn't know what a corned beef sandwich was, you know, stuff like that. Did you feel that sometimes you had to tone down the writing a little bit just to make it more so more people understood it because i mean it's, no, it's a hip no, show no okay. no 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 didn't care about the audience at all okay so you, just, you got you know you just got to do what you think is funny and that's you know that's larry's biggest strength is that you know he has unbelievable confidence in what he believes is funny and you just got to do a show that you like and if they like it they like it if they don't they don't you know i mean when we switch to thursday night you know, we were on Wednesday nights and our ratings wasn't great. And then we moved to Thursday night and all of a sudden we're like the number one show in the world. And Larry was quoted in the paper saying, oh, well, if they weren't watching us on Wednesday, we don't want them on Thursday. Okay. You know, like it, that was what our <laughs> attitude was. Our attitude was terrible, you know, but, but, you know, at the same time, it was actually all about being funny, which is, you know, the, the 25th priority of most shows. And most network and all networks, you know, being funny, it just seemed like that's all that should matter. Now, what was it like when Larry left? Was it a different feeling? Yeah, I was only on the show one year after Larry left, and it was it changed a lot. And I was kind of, you know, that was the year I wrote Yada Yada, but I was kind of a little burned out at that point. And 
you know, I had a DreamWorks deal that I kept deferring. And the show got a lot more group-oriented, you know. And um, so, and, you know, I, I'd be just without Larry, the the demographic and the sensibility of the writing staff got much younger. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was tough. So when you left, then eventually you, you went to, you got to deal with ABC show. DreamWorks. Right. Well, no, but the show, you had to show yes, on ABC. Yes, I had a show on ABC. Now, what was that like on it to helm your own show? Because even, I know you've worked as a producer and all that, mm -hmm. but now it's, it's you, you're the man. Was, did you feel pressure to just say, you know what, if this doesn't work, I know I've had a great, I know I'm good. I mean, how did you go in looking at that? You know, I wasn't that introspective about it. You know, there was, the pressure was coming from me. You know, Jeffrey Katzenberg was putting a lot of faith and a lot of money into his belief in me. And that's where the, and you know, and Jeffrey never put any pressure on me. But, you know, I put it on myself, and um, I love doing the show. I It was very eye-opening in certain ways because, you know, I realized, you know, when I was dealing with another network and dealing with, really dealing with a network for the first time, because at Seinfeld, we didn't even deal with the networks. You know, they, they let us do whatever we want. You get away with 22 minutes on masturbation. You're pretty much right. free and easy. <laughs> you know, and suddenly... You know, I'm under a network, you know, and they're they're intimately involved with everything, you know, casting. And, like, I, I thought that I could just cast it all myself. Like, but no, they had to have approval over that. This was all very eye-opening to me. The first time we had a table read, they they give, you know, we have a table read. It goes great. The first note they give me is a little story, you know, situation and maybe a little tiny change. And I flip through. I'm sitting there with all the network people and I flip through the script and I look at what they're saying and I go, no, no, I think it's pretty good the way it is. What else you got? <laughs> and they looked at me like I had just spoken out in favor of incest. I mean, like, I thought we could have like an adult conversation about these things, you know, and agree and disagree and you know, I mean, the worst thing to find out was that, you know, the networks, while being fans of Seinfeld, hated it because they hated Seinfeld because it broke all their rules. You know, the likability of characters. I mean, I was I was getting this, you know, Rob, the Robbie character doesn't seem very likable there. And I'm like, why did you get into business with me right. if you wanted likable? <laughs> what were you thinking? And, you know, and I was saying these things, you know, like it was the first time in my life I was in kind of a position to just, you know, be as honest as I always wanted to be. You know, my idols in life have always been incredibly honest people. Like who? John McEnroe. Love him. Love that guy. And he's so honest. And, you know, he's like compulsively honest. I love Charles Barkley. Also compulsively honest. And Cosell. And, you know. I don't know, you know, like there was always part of me that just wanted to be outspoken. Now, being outspoken to a network obviously is kind of puny, but still, you know, it was in my personality, and um, you know, and and it just started, you know, it started kind of snidely, you know, and I don't know, you know, it was funny because. I just started thinking, like, it's great to be in a position where maybe you could just say whatever you want a little bit. Right. You know, like, after my last year of Seinfeld, I went to the Emmys because Yada Yada was nominated for Best Script. And the show was nominated for Best Show. So Yada Yada lost for Best Script to the Ellen episode where she came out of the closet. Then we lost, Seinfeld lost to Frasier for best show. So I was talking to somebody from the LA Times or something, and, you know, I got quoted as saying, I lost to Ellen for coming out of the closet, and then I lost to Frazier for never coming out of the closet. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
I got a lot of shit. <laughs> you know, I got a lot of grief for that. And uh, but see, yeah. that's what's funny is because something like that's a funny joke. And by the way, you're a comedy writer, right? That's yeah. what you do. It's like that's something that if you did it on stage at a comedy club, everyone would die laughing. But because you did it and it's in the paper, they're thinking right. Oh, and because he lost. And it's like I, what I've learned is a lot of times you just going to the Emmys is fun. If, if you, it's great to win, but you know, if you don't win, all right, you know, we're going home. Yeah, I mean, you know, and this kind of like a ridiculous tactfulness that goes through show business. I mean, this is the most vicious business in the right. world behind everybody's back. Right. But in the open, <laughs> there's kind of like, you know, everybody's kind of like really polite and everything like that. And it's just baloney, you know, it's just, it's just crap, you know. Well, after the ABC went for what twenty six episodes, mm -hmm. you were done. And I said, I know you probably you said you never work with them again. It was well, yeah, I made a joke about that, but you know, I would have worked with it. I would have worked with them again. But then you did an animated show. Well, I helped out. I, that was not my show. That was I just helped out. Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, asked me. To, I really had very little to do with it. I was more involved with, um, you know, I did a couple other pilots, and then you know, I did a lot of work on Madagascar, the movie. Also, again. You know, because Jeffrey just a asked me if I would help out on the movie and, you know, I would do anything for him. Now, what's that like writing from after going from Seinfeld and the SpongeBob to writing, you know, something more targeted for younger kids? Is that, I mean, that's got to stretch your, you got to sit there and really think about that because the stuff that you think is funny, I always think it's like, you're like, well, is it funny for nine-year-olds or is it funny for 14-year-olds? I mean, that must be a hard write. Yeah, yeah, it is. And the funny thing is, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg convinced me to, you know, help out on Madagascar because he was like, look, the four zoo animals are in the Central Park Zoo and they're kind of like the four people characters in Seinfeld. And then, of course, he said, and, you know, and the writing and the humor cannot be sophisticated enough. So he's telling me exactly what I wanted to hear, which was, you know, nobody could sell like like him. You know, of course, once I got to the writing and I was writing, like I said, he go, he would, you know, send back the pages I've written and next to what, next to like a joke I'd like, he'd write, ugh. Okay. <laughs> and I would just crack up, you know. I mean, talk about somebody, you know, helplessly honest. You know, right. Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, he had no reason to, uh, to hold back, you know. <laughs> so now you've also written two books. Yes. Now, what made you decide to go back into that kind of writing? Well, you know, after my DreamWorks deal, my second DreamWorks deal was up, you know, and it was, you know, that it ended up being, you know, 14 years in TV. And, you know, there was part of me that I was realizing that I was really into kind of like getting back to writing full sentences again. And, um, you know, I started writing a ton of op-ed pieces for like the New York Times and the LA Times and articles for Esquire and things like that. And then somebody, you know, a publisher, Mike, Mike Sager, who was also a writer at the Washington Post, you know, suggested I put them together into a collection. So that was my, the first book, which was called Mandela Was Late. Okay. Um, because that's the title cut of a story I wrote. I, I had written and published this piece about, this kind of humor piece about uh, Nelson Mandela's last meeting with his parole officer. Okay. I was just thinking it would be so funny <laughs> if Mandela had a parole officer. And um, then, I don't know, I just started, I just had this little inkling of an idea and started writing. And um, I was like 35 pages into something before I realized I was writing a novel. And um, it just kind of, Carried, it'll be, it carried me along with it, and uh, that was, um, it won't always be this great. Did you, when you got back to writing that style, did you sit there and go, man, I missed this? Or did you sit yes. there and go, God, this is challenging? I mean, what was it? No, I missed this. That's what I said. I, God, I really missed this. I really love the idea of tossing sentences over and everything. And, you know, Seinfeld was more, you know, literate at its best writing-wise than any other show. But it's still not like writing beautiful sentences. Right. Occasionally, you got to write some really good stuff. But, you know, the idea was to make it seem as unwritten as possible, which is always the idea in writing, to make it seem as, you know, to, to make 
to put out a tremendous effort to make your writing look effortless. That's the whole thing. Now, I contacted you because you did that storytelling show with Wendy Lieben, well, the comedy show. Was that, had you been on stage a lot before that, or how did that come about? The reading? No, no with Wendy's show. Was it a, uh, did you do stand-up, or did you tell No, I just started doing stand-up. So what's that like? <clears throat> I mean, because you've written for so long, and you've written these lines. What's it like to actually get up on stage? Because it's, I mean, I did it for years. I, just, I did actually did a storytelling show the other night, which was weird, from doing, doing years of comedy than doing a storytelling show where people mm. are actually reading. But I had the stuff all memorized with just like little bullet points. And I want to take the mic out, and I thought, well, they're going to think I'm some kind of dick yeah. because, you know, everyone was keeping the mic in. What's it like for you getting up and doing stand-up? Um, like a really fun hobby. Okay. I don't really feel any pressure up there. The first time I did it, you know, which was at the West Side Comedy Theater um, in, you know, in, the, in Santa Monica, which is, you know, like kind of like a hot little club now. I felt no pressure. I was like, you know, somebody suggested I try stand-up, a young girl who I met at a party, you know, like she was a stand-up, and we were just talking, and I think I cracked a couple of jokes, and she goes, I want you to try stand-up, I think you should do it, and you know, like, you know, it always been like in the back of my mind is something I might try sometime, and I had a couple, I had an opening line for my stand-up act already for years, Okay. so, you know, I didn't really, you know, I don't really have that much at stake. So I wasn't nervous. I don't care whether the, the audience thinks I'm funny or not, or the audience likes it or not. It doesn't, it's not going to, you know, damage my self-esteem. Right. And, you know, I told Jerry that, you know, I was doing Seinfeld, I was doing stand-up, and, um, you know, he said, he gave me two little bits of advice, you know, like, one, never laugh at your own jokes, because the more serious you take your material, the funnier the audience will think it is. And I would never do that anyway, but it was good to hear. And then he basically said, you know, I think your attitude should basically be, look, I don't want to be here, but I have to. Okay. And that was already kind of my attitude, but it was, again, great confirmation. And uh, I don't find it that hard. I kind of just, it's a pleasure. I really enjoy doing it. And it's also kind of a repository for more thoughts. You know, I used, like, if I had funny thoughts, you know, during Seinfeld, it could go right into the show. What am I doing with them now? So are you, are you going to start performing a lot or just every once in a while? Or? I would like to perform more, but, you know, you have to kind of put that effort into getting stage time. Yeah, and, you know, that's, like, embarrassing. I don't want to have to do that. It is awful. Like when I, I don't How do you to do it. that? I don't, because I, I was back east. I was working all the time, but I got out of the business for a long time. And it's the same thing. I'm like, I'm not going to hang out. And, you know, and one guy's like, well, you come to the open mic. I'm like, I'm not going to the open mic. I, you know, I'm, you know, ask this guy about me. And yeah. he goes, oh, oh, okay. Like, we'll put you on the show. I'm like, yeah, it's sad. It's like, I don't feel like taking it. It's too much time. It's, it's as we always say, it's a young man's game. You know, they, they'll jump from club to club. I mean, but for you, though, you should be able to get on shows. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I know. I know. I could call up and, you know, just start running, race, you know rattling off my resume but you know that's kind of an embarrassing thing to do but you know I, i'm gonna i guess i'm gonna try to do it more but it's um you know i don't but you know the shows i've done you know i really like and Good. um you know the one at wendy liebman's show was just fantastic well i want to thank you for coming on this is uh great i'm glad you got took the time to come down it has been totally my pleasure this was really great uh, P, your your website is pmelman.com, right? And that's yes. M-E-H-L-M-A-N, which is funny. A kid named Peter Lehman used to pick on me when I was younger. And it's almost sort of the same spelling. You mix up a little Lehman? L-E-H-M-A-N. Hmm. And he used to pick on me. And he came to one of my shows back in my hometown a while ago. And I called him out on stage. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was funny. See, I don't, even, I don't even acknowledge that the audience is there. See, so. I was, now, did you tweet? I do tweet Peter, at Peter Melman. Okay, and so that's we have the, that and the website, right? Uh, yes. I want to thank you. People follow him on Twitter. Also follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have uh, about 390 episodes up. You can email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net, and also iTunes, Stitcher. You know, type in one word, Cooper Talk, because it gets confusing. There's so many Coopers. Just one word. You can hear me there. And also go to my website, StopTheSalt.com. As you know, when I had my heart problem. 
I changed my diet, and there's 120 recipes. No pictures to imitate you. No long lists of ingredients to get you confused. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. You don't need cumin. There's no recipes with cumin. So go buy that and buy it from the website. You can get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble, but buy it from my website because I'll sign it for you, and I make more money. So you want me to make money, right? So that's what I'm saying. So follow Peter Lehman. Peter Lehman. I call you Peter Lehman now. Peter Melman on Twitter. Follow me at Cooper Talk. Keep listening. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and buy StopTheSalt.com. Talk to you soon.